6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck continues his teaching on the book of Isaiah, chapter 2 through chapter 6, verse 8. In that day, the Lord will take away the bravery of their tinkling anklets and their headbands and their crescents like the moon. The pendants and the bracelets and the veils and the headdresses and the armlets and the sashes and the perfume boxes and the amulets, the rings and the nose rings. There's one you're probably not guilty of, girls. The festival robes and the mantles and the cloaks and the handbags and the hand mirrors and the linen wrappers and the turbans and the veils. Sounds like Isaiah dumped one of the purses open. Every time I go through something like this, I'm reminded of the Greek word. In the, this is Old Testament, Hebrew, but in the Greek, the word cosmos is the word that means to bring order out of chaos. And it's the same root that we get the word cosmetics. So I just had to point that out. Vanity. Vanity, vanity. And Isaiah, of course, is dealing in the idiom of that day. But in this sophisticated audience, it doesn't take any commentary or amplification to apply this to today. And it shall come to pass that instead of the sweet fragrance, there shall be rottenness, and instead of a girdle, a rope, and instead of a well-set hair, baldness, and instead of a robe, the girdling of sackcloth, and the branding instead of beauty. Thy men shall fall by the sword, and thy mighty in the war, and her gates shall lament and mourn. And she, being desolate, shall sit upon the ground. Isaiah calling their attention that their vanity, their, their aspirations are going to be brought to naught, that they're heading for judgment. On the one hand, we're primarily interested in how it might apply to us. On the other hand, I want to keep some historical perspective here. Isaiah is writing at a time just prior to, but about the time that the northern kingdom, Israel, is going into captivity. The Assyrians are dominant about 722 B.C. They take captive the northern, the, what we call Samaria, or the northern kingdom, or called Israel. Isaiah is preaching and pushing and prophesying on Jerusalem and Judah, the southern kingdom. By the time we get to chapter 13, Isaiah is going to be talking about not only the captivity that Judah is about to inherit with Babylon, but even goes so far to describe the destruction of Babylon. And when we get into Isaiah 13 and 14, we'll, be, we'll get into all that. What's interesting is Isaiah will be prophesying the fall of Babylon before Babylon's even an empire. At the time he's writing, Assyria are the heavies. Babylon's a little city-state that's a pawn of Assyrian politics. And it's a hundred years later, after the fall of Assyria, that uh, Nebuchadnezzar rises to power. And uh, Isaiah will write about Nebuchadnezzar's fall long before he's even risen, which must have made his writings bizarre to his readers at the time. In some respects. But okay, we got to chapter 4. The context is pretty straightforward. There's obviously a very clear, direct, local application by Isaiah to his people, to Jerusalem. Bear in mind, Isaiah now is a friend of the king, probably his cousin. Uh, He was intimate with the high priest. He's a man of rank. He's very eloquent, has the largest vocabulary of the prophets. 
almost 2,200 words, the different words used in the book of Isaiah. But his focus is Jerusalem. He's the court preacher. He's speaking against Judah and Jerusalem. That's his focus. But obviously being inspired by the Holy Spirit. And also, obviously, as we read this from time to time, the shoe pinches pretty bad. The shoe, you know, the old expression, right? So it fits, and we should uh, take that to heart. There is a short chapter. We have six verses. Chapter 4. And in that day, seven women shall take hold of one man, saying, We will eat our own bread and wear our own apparel. Only let us be called by thy name to take away our reproach. Now, this has, obviously, a local application. Probably. <laughs> but as you know, I'm a mystic. And uh, you'd be disappointed in the Chuck Mr. Bible study if I don't move out to left field now and then. And at the same time, this is the kind of thing that you either see or you don't. And if this bothers you, don't worry about it. But in chapter 4, verse 1, I'm fascinated by the fact we see these seven women. What's in the back of my mind, for some reason, are the seven letters to seven churches and the seven kingdom parables. And it's interesting that that day seven women shall take hold of one man. Who's the man? Jesus Christ, maybe. But what he's saying, we will eat our own bread. And wear our own apparel. Only let us be called by thy name. And I can't help but hear echoes of Sardis and what have you. Where they are Christian in name only. And uh, instead of eating the bread of life. And instead of putting on his righteousness. These women are eating their own bread. And wearing their own apparel. Remember the wedding guest that didn't have the peril provided by the host that he brought his own. Remember what happened to him. And so uh, it's interesting, but they want to still be called by thy name to take away our reproach. And if my analogy is correct, he will say, depart from me, I never knew you. Possible. It's just a hint. It may be just coincidental. Really. So verse 2. In that day shall the branch of the Lord. Now here we have this wonderful name, the branch, the netzer. It's interesting, there are 20 different Hebrew words that can mean branch, but there's one word that's used several times in the Old Testament, meaning the Messiah. There's a play on Hebrew words, the Netzer is also the derivative from which he's called a Nazarene. means the branch, the root of David, it's the title of Jesus Christ. In that day shall the branch of the Lord. And if you're familiar with Old Testament idioms, you know that that's a prophetic allusion to none other than the Messiah of Israel. That day shall the branch of the Lord be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and splendid for those who are escaped of Israel. Really. Another dominant theme throughout Isaiah will be the remnant. That small minority of Israel that will not be deceived by the coming leader. There's a coming world leader that is going to be accepted by Israel as their Messiah. In John 5, 43, Jesus said, I have come in my Father's name and you receive me not. Another will come in his own name and him you will receive. We call this guy the Antichrist. That's unfortunate because it's a myopic term. The word Antichrist really means instead of Christ. Pseudo-Christ. He is obviously against Christ, but that what the word originally meant in the Greek is something else. Of the uh, 50 titles of him in the uh, Bible, we've picked the one that is very narrow in its con- conception. This coming world leader is not just anti-Christ. He's anti-anything that's worshipped. Puts himself ahead of that. But in his initial stages, he's a peacemaker. He's the greatest problem solver the world's ever seen. He's charismatic, creative, and he solves problems no one else can. And he'll be embraced by the world as Mr. 
neat guy. And Israel will accept him as the Messiah, which probably means he's Jewish. And yet he also may be, if you have to do some eschatology in Islam, he will also probably be accepted by Islam as their Messiah. And that's going to cause some interesting aspects. That may be explained why, how, and where the temple will be built. There will be a small number, a remnant of Israel, that will recognize him for what he is and try to escape his influence, although it's with great difficulty because he will ultimately control the political, economic, and religious systems of the world. Verse 3, And it shall come to pass that who is left in Zion and he who remaineth in Jerusalem shall be called holy, and every one that is is, uh, written among the living. In Jerusalem, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and have purged the blood of Jerusalem from its midst by the spirit of justice and by the spirit of burning. Burning in the sense of a judgment of sin. And the Lord will create upon every dwelling place of Mount Zion and upon her assemblies a cloud and smoke by day and a shining of flaming fire by night. And upon all the glory shall be a defense. What an interesting idiom. That phrase, of course, speaks of the Shekinah glory, the same manifestation that, first of all, uh, dealt with Israel when they were called out of Egypt, when they were born in effect as a nation. The pillar of fire by night and cloud by day that uh, thwarted Yule Brenner and his bunch, if you recall, speaking in the idiom of the famous movie. It's also the Shekinah glory that actually dwelt between the cherubim and the tabernacle. It's the Shekinah glory that filled Solomon's temple. And Ezekiel describes with great pain its leaving Solomon's temple when it was over. This was the Shekinah glory that did not inhabit Herod's temple. Why? Because one greater than the temple was there, namely Jesus Christ. And there shall be a tabernacle for a shadow in the daytime from the heat, and for a place of refuge, and for a covert from storm and from rain. A brief vision in chapter 4. Now, in chapter 5, we have an idiom of the vineyard. Now, I will sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. A well-beloved hath a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. And he dug it and gathered out the stones and planted it with the choicest vine and built a tower in the midst of it. And also made a wine press in it, and he looked for it to bring forth grapes, and it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, between me and my vineyard. What could have been done more in my vineyard that I have not done to it? Why, when I looked for it to bring forth grapes, brought it forth wild grapes? In other words, undesirable. And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it shall be eaten up and break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down, and I will lay it waste. And it shall not be pruned nor digged, but there shall come up briars and thorns, and I will command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. Gee, what's he talking about? He explains it in verse 7, in case you're not following him. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is what? The house of Israel. Not the nation Israel, the house of Israel, as opposed to the house of Judah. Right? What's the symbol of the house of Israel? The vineyard. What's the symbol of the house of Judah? Fig tree. Run with that one, if you follow me. We'll get to that later. Vineyard of the the Lord is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his pleasant plant. 
You see, the, he's, he's including both in his prophecy, but the, the symbolism is, is denotative. And he looked for justice, and behold, oppression for righteousness, but behold, a cry. In your notes, you might want to take a look at the first 26 verses of Romans chapter 11. We won't write now, but in your notes for your own homework assignment, ancillary reading, Romans 11, first 26 verses. But there is a parable... It's interesting how some parables are in one gospel, some are two, some are three, some are even four. The parable of the vineyard is in three places. Matthew 21, verses 33 to 41. Mark chapter 12, first nine verses. And Luke 20, verses 9 to 19. We'll pick up any one of these. Let's take Matthew 21. Since it's in three gospels, it's probably pretty important. Well, it's all important, but we do get the sense that there must be something particularly important when it's that often. Matthew chapter 21, starting at verse 33. Here another parable. There was a certain householder who planted a vineyard and hedged it round about and dug a winepress in it and built a tower and leased it to attendant farmers and went into a far country. And when the time of his fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the farmers that they might receive the fruits of it. The farmers took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. Rough bunch. Ungrateful bunch of brutes, aren't they? Be careful, that's you and I, in effect. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. But last of all, he sent unto them his son, saying, they will reverence my son. And by the way, the Mark 12 verse says his beloved son, in case you're not following the analogy. Verse 38, but when the farmers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and let us seize his inheritance. And they caught him and cast him out of the vineyard and slew him. When the Lord, therefore, of the vineyard cometh, what will he do? (laughs) What will he do to those farmers? If you were the owner of the property, you sent your servants again and again, they get slaughtered or beat up. You finally send your own son, expecting they'll certainly reverence him, and they kill him. You're going to get pretty upset? That's the point. See, the whole issue in the Bible, the whole reason you study the Bible is for perhaps a reason you may not have thought about. And I'll use as an example the book of Job. Everybody tells you the issue in the book of Job is why do the innocent suffer? That's not what the book of Job is. If that's the issue, it never gets answered. What's the book of Job really all about? Getting the divine viewpoint. As we watch Job, we have the benefit of the dialogue between him and Satan. So we can see the scene from God's point of view, right? And that's true of the entire Bible. Part of what we're trying to do, what God would have us do, is understand our existence from His point of view. And that's what we're getting here. What's the point of view of this situation? From the point of view of the owner of the vineyard. Is he going to have a justification to draw a sword and get at it? Certainly be justified, wouldn't he? Verse 41. They say unto him, He will miserably destroy those wicked men and will lease his vineyard to other farmers who shall render him the fruits of in their seasons. And Jesus said to him, Did ye never read the scriptures that the stone which the builders rejected, the same has become the head of the corner? This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. It's interesting, we always think of vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, and we always quote that in the sense that it ain't our prerogative, it's his, right? In other words, we should never take vengeance. That's the Lord's prerogative. We always talk about that. Romans talks about it, quotes from the Old Testament. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Turn that coin over. Vengeance is his. And he will take it. That's part of what Isaiah will be talking about. 
Therefore I say unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits of it. And whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, and on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. You have two choices, to fall on the stone or have it fall on you. Which is it? And when the chief priests and Pharisees had heard his parables, they perceived that he spoke of them. <laughs> no kidding, Dick Tracy. <laughs> anyway, let's overshoot and go to Psalm, Psalm 80. Psalm 80. We'll just stick in that psalm here because it fits. Psalm 80. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, thou that leadest Joseph like a flock, who dwelleth between the cherubim, shine forth. Who dwelleth between the cherubim. What does that mean? Who dwelleth between the cherubim? God does. Which cherubim is he talking about? It says between implies two. It means the tabernacle. Who dwells between the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant? God did in the tabernacle. Before Ephraim and Benjamin, Manasseh, stir up thy strength and come and restore us. Restore, O God, and cause thy face to shine, and we shall be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long wilt thou be angry against the prayer of thy people? Thou feedest them with the bread of tears, and givest them tears to drink in great measure. Thou makest us a strife unto our neighbors, and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts, and cause thy face to shine, and we shall be saved. Thou hast brought a vine out of Egypt. Thou hast cast out the nations and planted it. Thou preparedest room before it and didst cause it to take deep root and fill the land. The hills were covered with the shadow of it and the boughs thereof were like goodly cedars. She sent out her boughs into the sea and her branches into the river. Why hast thou then broken down her hedges so that all they who pass by do pluck her? The boar out of the forest doth waste it, and the wild beast of the field doth devour it. Return, we beseech thee, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and behold, and visit this vine. And the vineyard which thy right hand hath planted. Who? Who planted the vineyard? Who is at the right hand of God? Jesus Christ. This is in the Psalms. 800 years before Christ was born. And the branch that thou madest strong for thyself, it is burned with fire, it is cut down, they perish at the rebuke of thy countenance. The reason I'm showing you this isn't just to make the point about the vine. Do you notice how the Holy Spirit, using the same idioms by David in the Psalms, by Isaiah the prophet, and in the New Testament, right? So when you are in John 15 and Jesus says, I am the vine and ye are the branches, it has more meaning to it. It's a whole different perspective, isn't it? Notice the next verse, verse 17 of Psalm 80. Let thy hand be upon the man of thy right hand. And upon the Son of Man, whom thou madest strong for thyself. That's in the Psalms. Isn't that interesting? So we will not go back from thee, revive us, so that we will call upon thy name, restore us, O Lord God of hosts, cause thy face to shine, and we will be saved. Okay, back to Isaiah. We got down to chapter 5, verse 7. We'll continue some more woes here. We've got six more coming. <laughs> Verse 8, Woe unto them who join house to house, who lay field to field, till there is no place that they may be placed alone in the midst of the earth. Verse 9, In mine ears said the Lord of hosts of truth, the many houses shall be desolate, even great and fair, without inhabitant. Yea, ten acres of vineyard shall yield one bath, and a seed of a omer shall yield an ephah. Woe unto them who rise up early in the morning, that they may follow strong drink. Who continue until night till wine inflames them. I won't ask for a show of hands. I'll just let you uh, think about that on your own. Therefore my people are gone into captivity because they have no knowledge. And their honorable men are famished. And their multitude dried up with thirst. Why? Because they have no knowledge. Gee, that's not fair. 
Who said fair? Can you get injured? Can you be hurt by being uninformed? You bet. What's the remedy? Get informed. Learn his word. Find out what God requires. Look at life the way he sees it. Get the divine viewpoint. Therefore, Sheol hath enlarged herself and opened her mouth without measure, and their glory, and their multitude, and their pomp, and he that rejoices shall descend into it. And the mean man shall be brought down, and the mighty man shall be humbled, and the eyes of the lofty shall be humbled. But the Lord of hosts shall be exalted in justice, and God who is holy shall be sanctified in righteousness. See the consistent theme. The pride of the wicked will be brought down, and the humble in the Lord will be exalted. Verse 17, then shall the lambs feed after their manner in the waste places, the fat ones shall sojourners eat. Woe unto them who draw iniquity with cords of vanity and sin as it were a cart rope. It's interesting how sin loves company. It's interesting how sin draws you in. A little bit leads to more. You can build on that yourself. You get the flavor of it. Verse 19, let's say, let him make speed and hasten his work that we may see it, and let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near, come, that we may know it. There again, another one of these 25 occasions when Isaiah uses this unusual title, the Holy One of Israel. Woe unto them who call evil good and good evil, and put darkness for light, and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet, and sweet for bitter. Wow! Does that summarize the theology, the philosophy of our world today. Value relativism. We don't speak of good and evil, we speak of a set of values. They have their values. We have ours. It's in a pursuit of tolerance and and, uh, social peace. We deal in value systems. It's the jargonese of today, but it leads to that insidious thing called value relativism. And if any of you have an interest in this or have not read Alan Bloom's The Closing of the American Mind, interesting book, interesting book, the ellipsis that has occurred on our campuses over the years in our pursuit of openness. We've embraced value relativism, the denial of absolutes, not realizing that once you do that, That also implies that there's nothing to learn from history because all things are relative. That means the historic classical roots of Western civilization have nothing to offer. There are no answers, so why search for answers? And that whole system has caused our graduates in our colleges to have closed minds. They don't know the great books. They don't know the Western. Even even just arguing in secular terms. It's interesting that Alan Bloom points out how our society is decaying and coming apart because of our denial of absolutes. And he's not dealing from a theological basis. At least not evidently in his book. But it's interesting. The the Closing of the American Mind. Must reading if you have a sensitivity in this area. Woe unto them who call evil good and good evil. Boy, does that characterize our value system. Who put darkness for light and light for darkness, bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe unto them who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Verse 19, for as written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? First Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? And after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign, the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. 
to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Gentiles foolishness. But unto them who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. What a strange phrase. The foolishness of God. How can you even put that in one sentence? God is foolish. And yet, that's what Paul is saying. The foolishness of God. And you can go through the whole scripture and notice how God seems to reach out to use foolish things to humble man. All the way through. He decides to wipe out the earth, save eight people, by building a boat. That's pretty weird. Yeah, really. Samson destroys the Philistines with what? The jawbone of an ass. You go right through, all the way through. You've got um, uh, a name in the Syrian general going to Elisha to be saved. Go wash in the muddy river seven times. You've got to be kidding. God uses that. All the way through. As you read the Bible, you, you can just be sent, you just sense that God's often, frequently, almost always, uses strange mechanics. The foolishness of God. And what's the ultimate absurdity? The ultimate foolishness? That the entire cosmos is going to be judged and measured and related to a Roman cross on a hill in Judea 1900 years ago? That mankind will be measured, judged, and dealt with on the basis of their relationship to one hanging on that cross. You see, that's what verse 18 says. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. To whom is it foolish? To them that perish. But unto us who are saved, it is the power of God. The foolishness of God. Verse 26, For you see your calling, brethren, how not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. For God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things that are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised with God chosen. Yea, the things which are not, to bring to naught the things that are. Why? So no flesh should glory in his presence. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Isaiah. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android App Store or search K-House TV on your Roku or Fire TV streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.